Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this week. By the way, starting at sundown, uh, because that's the beginning of a Jewish day, is when the sun goes down, it's the next day. Starting at sundown this evening uh, begins the day of high atonement on the Jewish calendar and on the biblical calendar. The most important day in the Jewish mindset, both the ancient Jewish mindset and modern observant Jews. It is the most important day on the calendar, the day of atonement. Uh, I'm not going to be teaching on it today. We've done so in the past, but I will give you some references if you want to read up on it later. If you want to read up on it this evening and just be mindful of what our Jewish brethren worldwide are thinking about, go to Leviticus 16. Read that for homework. There you'll see the priestly responsibility of the Day of Atonement. Also look in uh, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26, and you'll see what the people's participation was in the Day of Atonement. And if you want to see the numerous sacrifices that had to be made, it's astounding. If you want to see the sacrifices that had to be made that day, you could go to Numbers 16, or excuse me, Numbers 29, and start in verse 7. That was the day when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the only day of the year where he would enter into the presence of the Lord by the blood of the Lamb to atone for the sins of the nation. That is the day that Jesus Christ fulfilled for us, knowing, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats could never, never take away sin, but only the blood of the precious Lamb, Jesus Christ. So it has been fulfilled in the Lord. It's a wonderful time, by the way, to communicate the gospel to a Jewish friend is the Day of Atonement. Because everything in the Old Testament tells them that for them to observe the Day of Atonement and for them to be, have their sins atoned for, their national sins, there must be a temple, there must be a priest, and there must be a sacrifice. Now, we've got bad news. There's no temple in Jerusalem today. There is no functioning priesthood in Israel today, and there are no sacrifices happening on the temple grounds according to Levitical law. And so every Jew knows in his heart and his mind, my sins are not really atoned for on this day. Wonderful opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Awesome opportunity. By the way, they will respond to you by saying, well... Now that the temple is gone, we replace sacrifice with prayer and good deeds. So they may try to be very nice to you on this day, and that's awesome. They're trying their hardest to have their sins atoned for, but even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah, their prophet, told them. So tell them about Yeshua, Jesus Christ, who made the sacrifice once and for all. All right, now Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is where we find ourselves. And we remember now that as we're in Colossians chapter 3, we're dealing with application here. The first two chapters of the book of Colossians were doctrinal or theological. Paul laying out some correct doctrine, some true theology there. And now in the last part, the closing verses of the book, he's going to talk to them about how to apply those things. And so we should be expecting this week and in the weeks to come that the Holy Spirit's going to challenge us in a lot of ways. And I want to confess to you guys that I have been challenged to the core the last few weeks studying these passages in Colossians. I mean, just so convicted by the Holy Spirit, I could barely stand it. Now, you know that conviction and condemnation are not the same thing. Satan wants you condemned. The Holy Spirit convicts. It means to convince of truth and righteousness. And I have been so convicted of my sin and have had so many opportunities to repent and need to do so even more. And I just want to warn you guys. 
that you may be convicted by the Holy Spirit over the next couple weeks, but please remember that repentance is not a dirty word. It's an awesome word. Because as Peter told the nation Israel in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, times of refreshment come from being in the presence of the Lord when we repent. So if you feel convicted and you feel like, oh no, I'm guilty of that and oh, the weight of this and this is gnarly, don't let Satan begin to condemn you. Just go ahead and repent and let the Lord grace you. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and cause this word to be living and active. And that you, Holy Spirit, would wield it like a surgeon's scalpel. Go to the very innermost part of our being and deal with those innermost sins. Some of them so easy to hide and yet just boiling beneath the surface, Lord. I confess and continue to confess of these things. And we would ask today that you would wonderfully, by your loving kindness... Convict us and draw us to repentance. Jesus, it really is a cry of our hearts that we would be more like you. We understand that we're a work in progress and you're so good to complete the work that you've begun. And so now with some degree of fear and trembling and as best as we know how, we'd open our hearts just above our Bibles and say, Holy Spirit, cause these words to go directly there. And do a deep work in us for your glory. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand today, Lord. Pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, part of what's difficult about the application that we're going to encounter in these verses today is that so much of it is relational. And Christianity is relational. It's not meant to be lived out in an ivory tower. It's not meant to be lived out all alone. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. At least there shouldn't be. Christianity is meant to be relational. The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a love relationship. And then the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very relational. And I have found that that's difficult because of generally how selfish we are as people, isn't it? I mean, if Christianity was your own little bubble, you could deal with it. But guess what? In church relationships, we're in each other's lives. We're in each other's faces. We're called living stones by the Apostle Peter in his first epistle. And as living stones, we rub together. He would have had in his mind there the building of the temple, the house of the Lord. And those rocks that they would have brought, they were pretty well, you know, made there uh, by the laborers, but they would have some rough edges. And as they put them together to construct the house, those rocks would by nature rub off each other's rough edges, you know, just knock off the tough parts and the uneven parts. And and as they rub together, they just get more and more square and they fit together more beautifully. But there was that process of knocking off those rough spots and leveling them out. If you're like me, you got a few rough spots in your life. A few, you know, tough edges, so to speak. And the more we get into each other's lives in this thing called Christianity, this community of faith, the more that we begin to rub on one another. The more it's going to require forgiveness, repentance, and humility. Now, before we get to today's verses, let's just do a brief overview of the previous ones. Let's start reading in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There we see in the first three verses the mindset and focus of the Christian. Our focus is to be on the heavenly realm, not on the earth. And it's so easy to get caught up in temporal, physical, tangible things. But we are to have our mindset on the things that are above. So there is stated very simply the mindset and focus for the Christian. Now verse 4 is the hope of the Christian. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And we talked about this in a Bible study, both the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we are caught up to meet the Lord in the sky and we are with Him in glory, and then when the Lord comes back again, we come with Him in glory. And that is the hope of the Christian today, is the coming of the Lord. Titus chapter 2 calls it our blessed hope. And when it gets really hard to set your mind on the things above and you get consumed and thrashed by the things of the world, just remember that our redemption draws nigh. The Lord is coming very soon. Amen? Now verse 5 then is the right response of the Christian in light of these things. Verse 5 says, Therefore, because of these things, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, if you have skin, you struggle with those things. But the right response of the Christian is to make his salvation actual in his life by realizing, okay, the old man that was so susceptible to those things has been done away with by the cross of Jesus Christ, nailed to the cross, and I've been raised to newness of life. So those things no longer have power over me. I might at times be attracted to them. They might excite that old man at times. I might struggle with them, but they don't rule me anymore. I've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Jesus Christ rules me now, and I am complete in Him. And so the right response to those words, set our mind on the things above and be looking for the coming of the Lord, is just lay these things aside. Consider yourself dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, because greed amounts to idolatry. We need to help each other in those things. And by the way, those things are unattainable except for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Talk about that again in this message. Now, verse 6, we see a sobering thought for the Christian. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. We talked about the wrath of God, spent two weeks on it. His present wrath. His future wrath on earth, the tribulation period, and eternal wrath, that is a place called hell. And it's it's on account of those things, the things mentioned in verse 5, that that wrath, which is so gnarly, if you weren't here for those studies, I suggest you get it. That wrath is so gnarly, and it's coming because of those things. Now, that should rattle our cage a little bit, because if we're to be honest, as Christians, we too often flirt with those things of verse 5. But we're to have nothing to do with those things. And so there comes a time in your Christian life where you ask the Lord, Lord, will you please change my perspective even more? Will you cause me to hate that which is evil and cling to that which is good? Lord, I'm sorry that I flirt with what is evil and I dabble in what is good. It shouldn't be for the Christian. Lord, so do a work in my life by your Holy Spirit that I hate what is evil and I cling to what is good, as the book of Proverbs says. And and it's a sobering thought. 
And that those sins are so heinous before the Lord that men and women are going to hell for them unless they hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that should make us want to have nothing to do with them. These things are so horrific in how the Lord views them and in their consequences that we, as God's people, we shouldn't want anything to do with them. I think we need to be very honest sometimes when we are struggling with those things to come to a brother and sister and say, pray for me, man. I know this is despicable and wrong and I want freedom. I need help. Please lay your hands on me and pray for me. Amen? Give you a chance to do that today. Now, verse 7 is a Christian's past. It says, and in them, that's the sins mentioned in verse 5, you also once walked when you were living in them. I love how Paul thinks the best of the Colossians. He says, in them you once walked. Truthfully, they probably, many of them, were walking in those things. Had I wrote this letter to the Colossians, I would have said, and I know a bunch of you are still doing those things. Which is why the Lord didn't let me pen any of the Bible, I guess. guess that's why the Apostle Paul, you know, he just thought the best of them. He said, you used to walk in these things, but now you have a new life. Those are the old things. You have been raised to newness of life. You're no longer living in them. And so now, verse 8. Verse 8 says, but now, you also put them all aside. And now we have a new list of sins here. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Now, the New American Standard translates it, put them all aside. Some translations say put off. Some say get rid of. Some simply say stop doing. But the idea is that really of a garment. That you would put that garment off. You know, to a certain degree, our clothes sort of speak to the world about who we are, don't they? And our clothes change as we change. You know, it's funny when you see someone who hasn't changed since the 80s and they're still wearing their 80s clothes. But you know, the deal is they haven't changed. They kind of reached that place in life in the 80s and they're just kind of stuck there and so their clothes stay the same. But other people have changed and they've changed with fashions. But regardless of the fashion, oh, my wife is giving me the no sign. I always know I've said something done when she gives me that. Okay, let's back up. It really speaks of a garment, a garment that you would put off. And so the garment that we want to put off is explained there in verse 8. These things should be put off of us because they no longer characterize who we are in Christ. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Now let's just mention each one for a moment. Anger here in the text is the idea of an abiding, settled, and habitual anger that includes in its scope the purpose of revenge. It is possible to be angry and not sin. Ephesians chapter 4 says so. God does it all the time. God is angry and yet without sin. You know what I mean? But generally we, when we get angry, we're sinning, but not always so. And a good litmus test is, am I angry because something cost me? You're probably in sin. Or am I angry because something is an affront against the kingdom of God? Then it's probably righteous indignation. But in my life, it's usually sin. So this idea here is sinful anger, abiding, settled in your spirit. It's one of those things that's deep down in you. You know, you're, you're angry, and it includes the idea of revenge. Now the next word there is wrath. 
That can be defined as the boiling agitation of the feelings of anger and then a sudden violent outburst. It's that outburst of anger that comes, listed in Galatians 5 in the deeds of the flesh. You know, that anger's just been boiling under the surface, and a lot of people are like this. You know, they don't really know how to process things as you go through life, and they just kind of internalize, 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 and it just builds, and it boils, and it boils, and it boils, and it boils, and then they blow up. That's gnarly behavior. It's kind of destructive, and it's sinful. To let that anger so get a root in us that it just boils day after day, week after week, year after year, and then it manifests itself as wrath. We're to put that off like an old filthy garment. The next thing it says is malice. And that's ill will or or wanting to do harm to someone. The desire to injure. I'll just confess again in my own life, there's times where I'm so angry at a person or, or, or a group of people that I just imagine myself just strangling them, just ringing, just, ugh. That's sin. That's sin, and my Bible is telling me today it's got to be put off, cast away. The next one is slander. Oh, boy. Injurious speech to another's name. Speech which is injurious, rather, to another's name. Slander, you know what it is. Talking bad about somebody. To the demise of their reputation. And then abusive speech, or as it translated, filthy language. Foul speaking, low and obscene speech. These things are too prevalent in my life. I believe they're too prevalent in much of the church in America. I believe that we've been desensitized to these sort of things, you know, through the media and Hollywood and so on and so forth. And I think as Christians today, we need to make a decision to put those things off, to rid ourselves of them. Or as one translation says very simply, stop doing them. It's parallel to what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You guys remember this one. It says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, there is that idea of laying aside everything that encumbers us, every sin that so easily entangles us. And that's how sin is, you know. Sin is sticky. It entangles you. It's like flypaper. It's like a net, you know what I mean. When when an animal gets trapped in a net, the more it wiggles and tries to get out of it, you know, the more deeply entangled it becomes. And sin is like that unless you just cut it off. And what a lot of people want to do is instead of just cutting off their sin, they like to just sort of lay it down a little bit, you know what I mean. Now, can you imagine if you did that with a net? Sin is like this net that entangles you. And it says there in Hebrews that you've just got to lay it aside. And what a lot of people want to do is they want to keep it in front of them instead of laying it aside. If you lay it aside, you're free from that net and you can just go on unfettered. But if you don't lay it aside and you just kind of keep it in front of you, you get tangled in that net. Wish I had one to illustrate this point. But these things in our lives today need to be laid aside, put off. We need to rid ourselves of them. We need to stop doing them. And it's very clear in the tense of the Greek verb that's used here that this denotes a decisive, immediate action. 
Okay, so that's an action point now. If you're taking notes, this is something for you to do. This is your homework this week. There'll be four action points by the end of this message. This is the first one. The Bible here speaks of a decisive and immediate action. Today is the day to deal with these things. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Now, this moment, this day is a moment to deal with them. And so if there's some anger in your heart, deal with it today. If it's manifesting itself in wrath, today's the day to cut it off. If there's malice, slander, so on and so forth, you need to cut it off today. Now, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And the Holy Spirit's here today. You say, Lord, by your Spirit, help me to lay these things aside. You may be so hurt, and what happened is so real, and you may have every reason really to be angry, but it's consuming you, and it's causing you to act out in a sinful way. You need to get to the root of that issue today and cut it off and deal with it, lest we get tangled up in those things and our life becomes a mess. Amen? Now, The next verse, verse 9, we see the same urgency expressed. It says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, Paul does kind of call them out here. He says concerning some of those previous sins, you know, in verse 7, you once walked in those things in the old life, but now it seems that Paul has inside information that tells them they've carried lying into the new life. Lying was very apropos in the old life. Lying made a lot of sense to us sometimes in the old life, and it characterized many of us. But in our new life in Jesus Christ, the old things having passed away, becoming brand new by His power, we're to stop lying. The Bible just couldn't be any more clear. In fact, it says in Proverbs chapter 7 that God hates a lying tongue. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We rationalize, you know, little white lies. You know what I mean? Or, or we justify them in certain ways. But again, the Bible's just clear today. It just says, stop lying to one another because that's a, the old life. You're brand new in Jesus Christ. And the idea, again, being immediately. So that's your second action point. If there's anything that you are, have been lying about, repent of it today. Get out of that lie. This is your homework. Survey your life and say, Lord, where am I living a lie? Where am I telling a lie or lies and repent of it today? I'm going to say something now that is very, very sobering. Man, this whacked the cheese out of me this week. Listen. My wife, I'm waiting to see if she gives me the this again. I'm good with the cheese? Okay, thumbs up. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies. Contrasted to that, we learn concerning the Holy Spirit, God Himself. Jesus told us of Him in John 14 and John 15 that He is the Spirit of truth. So it follows that when we participate in lies, we are partnering with Satan. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a Christian. I don't ever want to be partnered with Satan. Stop lying. He's the father of lies. It's his domain. It is his realm. It's his game. And when you play it, you're playing according to his rules. That's a bad place for the Christian to be. 
when we are living in lies or participating in them, we are partnering with Satan. And for some of you, that partnership needs to be broken today. By repentance, by doing an about face, by repenting of that lie, exposing it with the light, saying in your heart, I no longer partner with Satan, I want to be partner with the spirit of truth. And so then when we speak the truth in love, as the Bible tells us to do in Ephesians 4.15, then we're partnered with God, because he's the spirit of truth. And isn't that where you want to be, Christian? I mean, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be in Satan's camp, in his domain. I want to be partnered with the Lord. And so I realize I need to stop lying. That then removes me from the enemy's realm. I don't think it's wrong for me to press this point. Satan being the father of lies. And when we participate, we're partnered with him. And Satan's goal for our lives is to kill us, steal from us, and destroy us, Jesus said in John 10.10. So if we're in partnership with him, we can be sure that he's working destruction and deceit in our lives. But Jesus came that we might have life and have more abundantly. Start walking in the truth, speaking the truth, and dealing with others according to the truth. And now you're partnered with God and God does cool things. Amen? Okay, the rationale for much of this is explained in uh, the second part of verse 9 and into verse 10. So stop lying to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. Now that's a doctrinal statement which has applicational ramifications for you and I. We have put on the new self. The old self is done away with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. What does it say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Read it later. Speak of this newness of life, that the old man has been crucified with Christ and we have been raised with Jesus to newness of life. Now, there's a couple Greek words functioning here. There's a couple Greek words in the Greek language for new. One speaks of something that happens at a point in time. And one speaks of newness in the sense of quality or freshness. Now when the Bible speaks about us uh, uh, being in the new self and becoming a new creature, it's something that happened at a point in time. The moment you repented of your sins and asked Jesus to forgive you, you became a brand new creature. And positionally before the Lord, everything changed. You're a brand new creature. But when it talks about us now walking in newness and practicing newness, it speaks of the then quality that comes forth from that theological reality. It speaks of a freshness and a quality, a newness of life. So we have once and for all put on the new man. That is our new clothing in Christ Jesus. And as a result, we are being renewed. Now verse 10 tells us what we're being renewed according to. It says that we are being renewed. There is that idea of quality and freshness. We are being renewed to a true knowledge. As the New Living Translation puts it, that is we are continually being renewed as you learn more and more about Christ. So we have been made brand new at a point in time, but we are being renewed in that the quality and the freshness of our life is being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it happens as we learn more and more about Christ. 
That's why we encourage one another to read the Bible. Because that's where Jesus is revealed. Where are you going to find Jesus if you don't find him here in the Word? He is the Word. He is the bread of life. And when you feast upon the Word, you feast upon the person of Jesus Christ. The more you put the Word in, the more that newness of life comes out. Haven't you ever noticed that whatever goes in goes out? Very elementary to life. And if you are continually consuming, I'm talking now in our emotional and spiritual being, if you are consuming trash, trash comes out. If you watch, tra- if you watch trashy TV, you have trashy thoughts. If you listen to trashy music, you say trashy things. That's the reality of how we're created. There's no escaping that. But if we feast upon the true knowledge of Jesus Christ and the word of God is coming in, then that newness of life, that freshness, that quality is made manifest and comes forth from our lives. The word is made flesh in us and flows forth from us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whatever you put in is what's going to come out. And listen, I want to represent Jesus Christ in the last days. I'm not good at it. The Lord is working on me concerning it. And so because I know there's more to go, I read the Bible as often as I can. That is studying the person of Jesus. And the more of this that comes in, the more of him that goes out, the more of an effective witness I am for Jesus Christ in these last days because people are going to hell. I don't want them to. So I want to rightly represent the Lord, which requires getting that true knowledge in. The word renew can also be translated renovated. I love that. I like that translation. You're being renewed. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You are being continually renewed or renovated. I love that. I I relate with that idea of renovation. My wife and I bought a home some time ago, and it was an unlivable dump. An unlivable dump. It was all we could afford. It was an unlivable dump. Mold growing up the walls, ceiling collapsing and falling, just disgusting. And what, what, what did we do? We renovated it. We had to gut it. We gutted it down to the studs, removed the entire exterior, except for the hardwood floors, which were original, original 1936 and were quite beautiful. We rolled back the shag carpet and found these beautiful 1936 hardwood oak floors. Wonderful. But everything else, we ripped out, including the plumbing and the electrical and the sewage, all the way to the street. That's how bad this house was, including the roof. Gutted her to the studs and then renovated. That's what the Lord is doing in our lives. He is wanting to just gut us, so to speak, to just purge out all those nasty things, to just rip out all that junk as we put off immorality, impurity, sensuality, and greed, as we put off anger and wrath and malice and abusive speech, as we put these things off, it's like ripping down those old moldy walls. It's like rolling up that old shag carpet. It's like ripping out those old broken and corroded pipes. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and renovates. And I love what my wife did with our house. It's beautiful now. It's white and clean and wonderful and awesome and gorgeous. That's what the Lord does with our lives if you'll let Him. He comes into a dark and dirty and messed up heart and soul. And He says, okay, son, I've made you brand new, but start taking off some of these old funky coverings. Take off that abusive speech. 
Son, I want you to take off that slander. I want you to just take that anger off. I want that impurity. And that's it. Just take it off. And then he comes in and he beautifies. He renovates. Are you letting the Lord do that today? Are you letting the Lord do that? One way to judge whether or not you're doing that is whether or not you're reading your Bible. Because that process happens as the Holy Spirit works through the Holy Word. And if you have caused your life to be void of the word other than on Sundays, there's not much renovation happening. Could you imagine if you hired a contractor to renovate your house, to remodel your house, and he showed up once a week? Hey, it doesn't work, man. Very slow, tedious, painful process. You just show up for the word on Sundays, and that's all you get. Then the renovation that the Lord wants to do in you has been slow, painful, and tedious every day in the word. Let the spirit of God renovate. Amen? That's the concept of sanctification, the process by which the Christian is transformed, changed, renewed, and renovated by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus Christ. And as I said, it is a work of the spirit. Notice there what it says we are being renewed according to. It says that we are being renewed according to a true knowledge and according to the image of God. And as we just spoke of, that is the Word of God, the true knowledge. And the image of God is a pattern of Christ. It's become very clichéic in our society and so subsequently watered down. But it's a wonderful saying. What would Jesus do? It's really great. You know, when someone first let those words fall from their lips, it was awesome. What do I do in this situation? Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. What would Jesus do? Oh, awesome. Oh, I don't know. Well, let's look in the Bible. Oh, okay, and there we find it. Because we're told in the Bible that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. He's God in the flesh. He explains to us in His humanity how the Lord is. And so when you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus dealt with people, that is the pattern then that we're being renovated into or according to. That is the blueprint or the plan is the person of Jesus Christ. And so what would Jesus do? It's a wonderful question to ask because it takes you to the Bible. You've got to figure it out. You've got to see there. And then we become imitators of Christ as the New Testament tells us to be. Now, that's contrary to what too many of us allow to happen, is that we become patterned after this world. But Romans chapter 12, verse 2, tells us not to do that. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When it says conformed to this world, it can be communicated, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. And this world has a mold, and it's anti-Christ. It's satanic. It isn't godly. It's got a very clear mold. And it's communicated predominantly in popular culture. Now, I'm not talking about, you know what I mean, the shoes you wear or, you know, your hair length or merely external things like that. I'm talking about the things that become acceptable to us in culture. I mean... Movies that are PG now, when I was a kid, were, you know, R+. Right? And now they're just barely PG. I'm waiting for them to come out with G9. You know how there's PG-13? It'll be G but 9. You can be 9 years old and you can see it'll have naked people in it cussing. I mean, that's the way Hollywood is going. That's the way the world is going. Am I wrong? I mean, that's the way it's going. 
And what, what that does is if the, if the Christian immerses himself in those things, if those things come in, then they become to come out. And now the world has successfully fit you into its mold. And instead of reflecting Jesus Christ, you reflect the spirit of Antichrist. And we're all guilty of it to one degree or another, and it's wrong. Man, I'm convicted. Am I alone? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Can the sermon be over? No, a couple more pages. Ugh. Okay, so instead of being conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Once again, there's no way that that happens other than the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word. Day by day, if, weigh it out, you know what I mean? Day by day, are you allowing into your soul more of the perversion of the world or more of the Word of God on a daily basis? On a daily basis, what are you doing? Because it will have an effect. You need to weigh it out. It's like counting calories, you know. If you eat too many calories, no matter what you do, you're going to grow. <laughs> but if you eat less calories, you're going to shrink. Counting calories. Listen, count what's coming into your life. And the things of the Lord ought to outweigh the things of the world or you will be conformed to the image of the world instead of the image of God. And we're to be conformed to the image of God. Now, all these things have a, 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 a wonderful effect in our lives and that's that uh, ultimately we become more identified with Christ than anything else. Verse 11 speaks about this. You know, the world has a lot of labels, doesn't it? You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that, you're so on and so forth. But, but the goal is to just be identified with Christ. And when we're practicing things, that's what happens. It speaks about in verse 11 in archaic terms. Uh, you know, we don't use these phraseologies too much anymore. But in verse 11, it says that this is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free men, but Christ is in all, uh, Christ is all and in all. So there were distinctions in the ancient world as there are now, Greek and Jew, racial barriers. Well, when you come into Christianity, you're no longer identified by race. Isn't that good to know? In fact, we're told around the throne of God will be every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so instead of, oh, you're black, you're white, you're Mexican, you're Chinese, you're this, you're that, you're the other. No, you're in Christ. That's how we're to view one another in the body of Christ. And so... Christ does away with racial barriers. He does away with religious barriers. This is within Christianity now. In the first century church, there was a distinction. I'm a Jewish Christian. I've been circumcised. You're a Gentile Christian. You haven't been circumcised. There's a difference between us. And Paul here is saying, no, you're simply identified now by Christ Jesus. So it does away with those old religious affiliations. It does away with cultural barriers when it says barbarians and Scythians here. Uh, This is a little bit of the Greek mind being portrayed here. The Greeks considered anybody other than a Greek to be a barbarian. And the Scythians were the lowest of them. And so cultural barriers, you know what I mean, um being sort of ethnocentric, so on and so forth. Those are done away with in Christ. And social barriers... Slave and freemen. This was written during the time of the Roman Empire, and the majority of the Roman Empire were slaves. 
So many of them were slaves. The slaves in that time were not allowed in public to wear distinctive clothing. Otherwise, they would see how many of them were slaves and say, well, let's just beat up Rome. Rome is mostly slaves. And so they had to blend in with the rest in society. But there is always that distinction, that undercurrent. You were either a slave or you were free in Roman society. You know what I mean? And there are those social undercurrents today. And they're evil. And they penetrate the church. The church is where the rich and the poor ought to be able to come together. Where the affluent and the deprived. Where the eloquent and the not so eloquent. Where the lovely and the seemingly unlovely should all be able to come together and just be one in Christ. Identified by Him and not these superfluous things. Amen? So it says there at the end of that verse, Christ is all and in all, or better translated, I think it could be said, from now on, everyone is defined by Christ and everyone is included in Christ. Speaking of those in the church. Now, we finish up. Verse 12, we have put off those old things. We've taken off those old garments And now we've got some new garments that the Christian is to put on explained to us in verse 12. It says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, the idea of a garment there, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are to put those things on. Now, who's the one that wore them perfectly? Jesus I mean, Jesus is those things personified. He was compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. He was those things personified. And so as we become conformed to his image, we put these things on. And we need to be cognizant and purposeful of these things. Yes, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And don't you love how all of a sudden you wake up one day and you look at your life and you say, I'm a little kinder now. Glory to God, the Lord working in me. I'm a little humbler now. Thank you, Lord. My sister laughed. My sister laughed when I said I'm... It was a hypothetical. I wasn't speaking to me in particular. When one wakes up and realizes they are a little more humble today. So the Holy Spirit naturally does that as we feast on the Word of God, according to the knowledge of Christ Jesus and according to the pattern. But it tells us here that we're to be purposeful about it. We're to put these things on. That daily we're to be mindful of them and let these things clothe us. Compassion. It means to suffer with. It can be translated tenderness of heart or tender mercies. I, I love a mom. My mom is like this. So many of, of the moms that I know in this church are like this. Their heart just breaks 10,000 times over with any bad news they hear. You know that? I love moms like that. That's compassion. That's tender mercy. I remember growing up watching TV, and my mom would cry at the long-distance commercials on TV. You know, some kid, Mom, I love you. She'd be crying. It's beautiful. And if today you go up to my mom and, oh, I was on the way to church today, and I got a flat tire, and I stubbed my toes. (laughs) Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I mean, she will feel it for you. And it is sincere, and it is beautiful, and it reflects the Lord. 
Because the Bible says that Jesus has numbered the hairs upon our head. And when one of your hairs is in a bad way, the Lord knows it. He has compassion. It means to suffer with, to identify with, tender mercies. By the way, not only does Jesus have compassion on us, suffer with us, but he suffered for us. And greater love hath no man than this, that he will lay down his life for his friends. Kindness was an interesting word there in the Greek. And in that culture, it was used to describe wine which had grown mellow with age and had lost its harshness. There again, the idea of the Lord and us being together, just knocking off some of those rough edges. Part of it comes with the aging Christian, but really it should be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's something that we should put on is that kindness. And then humility and gentleness, the absence of self-exaltation. And gentleness can be put together with the idea of meekness. It's a fair translation of gentle, is meek. Now understand that gentleness in the Bible does not mean weakness. That's a sort of a, a, a social construct that we ascribe to gentleness. Is Oh, that man is gentle, he's probably weak. Never portrayed in the Bible that way. Gentle, Jesus was gentle. How weak was he? He said all authority had been given unto him. He had all the power, all the exousia in heaven and on earth. All authority and all right and all might had been given to him. Moses was the meekest man on earth. He wrote that himself, by the way. True humility. Moses was the meekest man on earth, but I'll tell you what, when Moses had to lead, Moses led. When Moses had to bear, uh, or when he had to wield the rod, he wielded the rod. He was by no means a weak man. Jesus certainly wasn't weak. In fact, in England, if you go to the horse races, they call the horse that won the meek horse. You see, we have bad connotations for meek and gentle. They understand English a little better in England. The horse that won is called the meek horse because it was the fastest and most powerful horse, yes, but it was the horse that was in greatest submission to the jockey. And that is a perfect definition of meekness. It is power in submission. Power in submission. The Christian is called to be powerful in the spiritual and the physical realm. But the Christian is called to be submitted to the Lord. It is power in submission. And then patience, the capacity to accept, tolerate, delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Now, we need to put these on. We need to clothe ourselves with these things. I like the way Kenneth Wiest puts it, a Greek scholar. He says, the idea is to become so possessed of the mind of Christ as in, though, as in though feeling and action as to resemble him and as it were reproduce the life that he lived. You understand and I understand this horrible truth. Here comes more conviction, but just let it be the mercies of the Lord. You may be, I may be the only Bible that some people will ever read. You've heard that. Somebody that you work with, they're never going to come to church. Someone in your family, they may never come to church. What they see in your life may be the only Bible, so to speak, they ever read. It may be the only representation of Jesus Christ they ever have. That is why the Bible tells us to right now put on these things. 
Consciously, cognizantly, purposefully. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so that is our third action point. Is to put these things on this week. To be purposeful about it. And every opportunity where you have to be hard-hearted, be compassionate instead. Every opportunity where you could be mean, be kind instead. Every opportunity where you could exalt self, be humble instead. So on and so forth. And the idea in the Greek language is to put them on now and to keep putting them on. And that's our homework this week. And now our last action point is in verse 13. It says that we are to be bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive one another. We are to be bearing with one another and we're to forgive each other. That's your fourth and last action point. I want you to forgive somebody this week. Or maybe a lot of people. Sometimes really hard to do, huh? Is there anybody in here that can't think of somebody they need to forgive? Wow. Okay, so we've all got homework. To forgive somebody this week. Listen, this is especially sometimes difficult within the Christian community. Because as fellow Christians, you know... it's so relational. We know so well Christ. We, we expect certain things of one another, and yet we're, we're sinners. We're, we're going to sin against one another. And so often, you know, you, you see all the separation come in the body of Christ by refusal to forgive. We're going to sin against one another. That's why we're told to let love cover a multitude of sins. In our life together, should the Lord tarry, reality carpentry is still a church 20 years from now. And some of us are here. I will have sinned against you a multitude of times by then. And you against me. We're going to have to purpose in our hearts to forgive one another. If Christianity was not so relational, these things would not be so difficult. I encountered a horrible old poem this week. It said, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. I thought it was funny, but sad. If we put those things on, we're able to bear with one another and we find ourselves being able to forgive one another. Now, I'll just say this concerning forgiving others. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. It says so right there. It is a commandment. It's not optional. Society makes it optional. It is not optional, biblically speaking. It is a commandment that we would forgive whatever has been done against us. How are we to forgive? In the same way that Jesus forgave us is what the standard is. Oh, wow. Because how have you been forgiven by the Lord? Deep and wide and a lot? Tons? Over and over and over again? That's how we're to forgive. Can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Peter, Peter tripped out on this. In fact, let's look at it. Go to Matthew, uh, Matthew 18. We'll finish right here, I promise. Matthew 18.
This is an incredible passage about forgiveness. Matthew 18, let's start in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter was being incredible here, religiously speaking, because current rabbinical teaching, or or what the rabbis and really at the time the scribes um, uh, taught at this time, was that you were obligated to forgive a brother who sinned against you, a fellow Jew who sinned against you, up to three times. And after three times, that's where we get three strikes and you're out. That's all that you are obligated for. Somebody sinned against you three times, you had to forgive him, but on the fourth time, no. And that was the current teaching in the first century of Judaism. And so Peter was being awesome. He, he keystoned it. He doubled it and added one here. I mean, this was an incredible statement Judaically thinking. But now we're talking about the new covenant in Jesus Christ here. Seven times, Lord? That was incredible. I imagine the other Jews listening. Matthew and John and James and the other guys went, Whoa! Peter, seven times? Oh, you'll never do it, Peter. Wow, shut your mouth, man. Seven times. Probably fully expected Jesus, knowing him as a Jewish rabbi, to say, no, no, you know, three times. But what does Jesus say in verse 22? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 70. Now that's 490. What does that mean? Does that mean we're to count against somebody? Hey, bro, that's 471. You got 19 more and I'm done with you, man. No, that's not what it means. Jesus was just using some cool language here that said, you're just to continue forgiving no matter what. Now he illustrates how potent this is. This is is tough stuff here. It says in verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is a ton of money. This is the equivalent to a few billion dollars today. Talent is a ton of money. 10,000 talents, okay? You owed a lot. Verse 25. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. That's what they would do in those days. If you couldn't pay a debt, you'd be sold into slavery. Wonderful little mini lesson here that uh, your sin affects other people. It wasn't just the guy that owed that went into slavery. It was his family as well head of the household, you're caught up in sin, you're selling your family into slavery as well. Please remember that. But that's parenthetical. Verse 26. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's nothing. That's like 5,000 bucks today. Very little amount of money compared to 10,000 talents. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to beg him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. The exact same words that the cat had said to his master a little while ago. This guy who owed far less, infinitely less, is now saying to him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Verse 30. But he was unwilling, however, 
but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just am going to confess to you, I don't know what that means. This is written to Christians. So shall your heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive your brothers from the heart. I don't know what that means, I'm going to confess, but it doesn't sound good. And so we are commanded to forgive because we have been forgiven. To accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and then to forgive to extend it to others in biblical terms is criminal and deserving punishment. We are commanded to forgive and we are enabled to forgive because of the cross. Do you remember our lesson a couple weeks ago? God is able to forgive us because justice has been met upon the cross. Justice will be dealt out in the universe by God. And so because of the cross, we are enabled to forgive. We can forgive as we have been forgiven. It needs to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it just needs to be. We must forgive. If we don't forgive, we find ourselves once again in Satan's territory. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity in Greek is the word tapas. It means geographical, physical, spatial location. Very simply what is said is when you harbor bitterness in your heart, you give Satan a location in your life. When you refuse to forgive and you choose to stay mad, you open the doors of your life up to the devil and you say, come in and torment me and kick me around for a couple decades. That is one of the reasons why the Lord tells us today you must forgive because unforgiveness is so destructive and we are his children and he wants us to live in freedom and in abundance and in newness of life and it requires that we forgive. Amen? So there's our action points, all four of them. Put off anger, wrath, malice. Stop lying. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and bear with one another and forgive one another. I am so challenged by this word today. And so I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon me in a fresh and powerful way that I'd be able to do these things. If you want to pray that prayer along with me, why don't you join me by standing up?